Hey everybody, this is Jimmy. Welcome to the Jimmy Tingle Show with Politics Code Blue. We have a very special guest for you today, folks. That's right, an author who has written the definitive book on how the younger generation, specifically Gen Z, is going to take over the world, ladies and gentlemen, or at least save the world, put it that way. The name of this book is How Gen Z is Channeling Their Fear and Passion to Save America. The name of the book is Fight. Please welcome my guest, John Delavolpe. This man is at the IOP, the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. He is the head of the polling division. But right now, please welcome John Delavolpe. John, this book is fantastic. Thank you for joining us today. It's such a pleasure to be with you, Jimmy. And thank you so much for the kind words about the book. Oh, it's great. It's written in simple, clear language about Generation Z. The Zoomers, as John refers to them. I love that term, the Zoomers. Well, just to speak to the uh, the quality of John Delavope's polling ability, out of all the pollsters that were uh, bearing all this bre- heartbreaking news for the Democrats in the 2022 midterms, the Democrats are going to get killed. There's a red wave coming. The Democrats are going to lose 40, 50, 60 seats in the House. All this nonsense Mr. Delavolpe over here was telling people, oh, no, not so fast. Your numbers were different, John. And just give us a little uh, window into the role that young people played when it came to the 2022 uh, midterm elections. Yeah. Uh, hey, thanks for recognizing that, Jimmy. What I talked about in the days leading up to the election, I, I spent a lot of time on MSNBC. And I said, listen, I'm not sure if this is going to be a red wave. I'm not sure if this is going to be a blue wave but I'm guaranteeing you there will be a Gen Z wave, okay? And that's what happened. We saw specifically in the key battleground states, we saw turnout that eclipsed or was very close to eclipsing modern records, number one. And then we saw support for Democrats that honestly was off the charts. For example, John Fetterman won close to 75% of the youth vote. 75%. It's, it's, it's what state was that? just number. That was in Pennsylvania. You know, Mark Kelly in Arizona for the Senate looked to, to get over 70%. So listen, the votes of everybody over the age of 30 were the reason that Democrats hold the Senate today and the reason that Kevin McCarthy is, is holding on to the House, you know, by the, by the, just, you know, by his, by his fingertips here, that, um, younger people overwhelmingly supported Democrats and they voted at, at, at numbers where, we frankly, um, most people had not expected. It was just a misreading of, I think, the passion of the youth electorate and how much polling has changed and needs to change and evolve in this Trump era. But for the audience, just describe what is Generation Z and what, what age group are we talking about? Here's the simple way I think about this. Okay, If you are younger and you remember September 11th and September 12th and 13th, how we all came together, after that, after that tragedy, you're mm-hmm. squarely in the millennial camp. Okay. Yeah. If you don't, or if your memory is hazy, like my kids, they were in first grade and, and preschool during that time, you're squarely in Gen Z. And what that means is you don't have a living memory of America standing up, you know, uh, and being at our, at our best. And I think that's such a, a key component of, of what makes Gen Z, Gen Z. Mm-hmm. And when you talk about they turning their fear and passion into positive action, what is their fear based on? Well, it depends upon, I think, who you're talking to. I'll never forget. 
I talk about in the book, a young woman from the Midwest, she said, listen, the way people like you and your generation think about your taxes, you know, or your paycheck, you know, and that stress, she said, that's the stress that we have every single day. Every time they walk into a classroom, an auditorium, a theater, they're carrying the weight of whether or not there'll be another mass shooting, whether there'll be gun violence. That's just one example in terms of the fear. There's also tremendous fear about kind of the economic opportunities, right? Can they afford an education? Can they afford an education, have a profession and live in their hometown and be able to afford a basic, basic life, right? That's something that also weighs them down. Of course, concerns about the future of the planet and climate and their environment, another fear. Um, and today, one of the things that makes me optimistic, makes me hopeful, is that they talk about the fears and trying to protect the rights of those more vulnerable than even themselves. You know, younger people who are identify in the LGBTQ community as an example, you know, young immigrants as an example. So these are among the areas that gives them fear, stresses them out. Um, but again, when you're faced with fear, Jimmy, you know, you could turn away, we can lean in, right? And I think yeah. what is emblematic about this generation is they're standing up and, and, and they're fighting. It's a little bit of an homage uh, fight. It's an homage to um, my hometown of Brockton, Massachusetts, you know, yeah. a place that had such world-renowned fighters in the day. Yeah. World-renowned. You're not kidding. Rocky Marciano and then marvelous Marvin Hagler. Right on. Exactly. Great, great fighters. And Brockton's a great town. It's so great that a guy from Brockton is now at Harvard. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> not Me only too. at Harvard uh, in, in doing polling, but having such an influence uh, on the on the culture right now in terms of politics, because yes, they were afraid. And as you say in the book, they turned their passion into action. Their efforts have been so consequential in the last four or five elections, going back to 2000, because the, the, the mantra used to be, well, young people are important, but young people don't vote. And this generation of young people has completely flipped the script on that. I was reading about uh, Parkland, would you say that Parkland was pretty, pretty uh, instrumental in the whole rise of Generation Z? It was certainly kind of a defining moment. And, and for me, you know, I asked younger people and all Americans kind of what they think. Right. So I measure things based upon a change of attitude month over month or year over year. And we saw a significant change of attitudes related to gun safety um, pre and post Parkland. But. I think it may be more accurate to actually widen the lens a little bit. I think it's a combination of Mandalay Bay, actually, right? On October 1st, 2017, mm. Las Vegas and that country music concert and right. Parkland together. But it was the response of, of David Hogg, who I talked about ex extensively in the book, right. who he and I have become friends um, after he visited and attended Harvard for four years. But it's that moment where younger people essentially kind of challenge their generation and challenge all of us to stand up, you know, and to organize and to take matters into their own hands. And that was a defining moment. And I saw, again, I saw attitudes change, but I also saw wherever these young people organized, wherever there was a protest, wherever there was a rally, we also saw large numbers of young people registered to vote afterwards. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't just that they were talking, they were following it up and backing it up. And don't forget, we saw the summer of 2018, we saw AOC beat back 
you know, um, a, Congre a congressman, I think Crowley, who was a key member of the Democrat coalition, uh, Democratic leadership. Again, I think that was kind of inspired by a lot of younger people. And then in 2018, we saw the largest turnout uh, of recent times among younger people in that midterm election. Right. So they're turning their anger and their fear and their passion into political action. It's very exciting. Uh, and all the examples that you use in the book of the differences of which candidates actually win these elections is really revealing. For example, Barack Obama, right? When I started this research at the IOP back in back in 2000, there was essentially no such thing as a generation gap. You know, a younger person in their teens or 20s was just as likely to vote Republican as Democrat. Okay, and that over the, over the course of several years, um, war, uh, lack of response um, to national disasters like Katrina, et cetera, that's that change. And 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 what Barack Obama did, and I actually think that a lot of that we saw, you know, personally in Massachusetts, following right. up on what Deval Patrick did as well, right? Mm -hmm. they, they knew, they both knew that to win the Democrat primary, they needed to what I call expand the franchise, right? And what uh, Senator, then Senator uh, Obama did was he focused on younger people, in particular in Iowa. In fact, you, a 17-year-old could vote. He tapped into high schools. He tapped into younger people. And he won that under 30 vote, 55%. He won a majority of just that vote. He lost everybody over the age of 30, but it was enough to carry him through. Um, in fact, Hillary Clinton came in third place among younger people. Um, John Edwards came in came in second place, but I think Hillary got like 10, maybe 11%, you know? And um, I was actually, I was actually in New Hampshire and, and met some of her advisors the next morning where they said, where they said, supposedly Secretary Clinton had said, find me young people. You know, she mm -hmm. had known that the campaign underperformed with younger people and she tightened that up, went on to win New Hampshire. But I argue in the book that if she just did slightly better in in Iowa with younger people, she would have won that Iowa caucus. She already had what she was on her way to winning New Hampshire primary, and she likely would have been president if not for just a couple of thousand younger people uh, in Iowa who 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 the Obama campaign really really invested in and made them an important part of of who they were in the leadership of that campaign and paid dividends. How important is it to have people around you who are visionary in that respect? Because not all campaigns look to, to younger people. I mean, the Obama campaign did, but you as, you, as you say in the book, Hillary had more of the, you know, the, the old guard with her who had come up through the ranks with Bill and, 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 and his eight years in office. And so, but how important is it to have a younger generation of uh, operatives and uh, people who are thinking that way? I think it's, it's, it's obviously very important, right? It's yeah. obviously very, very important because, it, it, and I've had a lot of conversations at the IOP, my students and I, we briefed all the campaigns. And I remember, I talk about this in the book, I remember briefing the Obama campaign. We had, I think, six or eight other key of the, of the, of the early state coordinators and managers on that call. They knew they were hungry. They needed to knew that they needed to rewrite the framework you know, in the playbook, if they were going to be successful. And it started with younger people. Um, mm -hmm. And what I think now we're like, those are millennials back then. That was in 2008, yeah. but 2018, 2020, 2022. I believe that 
a lot of people now understand and appreciate, you know, the importance that young people play. And um, I think there's probably more recognition that they that they do vote and that they do need to kind of be listened to. But then the question is, you know, who around the campaign table is 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 listening and empowering those voices? And I think it's it's so important that every campaign from 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 city council to mayor to governor to to president of the United States needs to have, you know, kind of younger people at, at the at the core, at the center of it. Right. Now, as a pollster. When you took the job, which I thought was really fascinating, you took a leave of absence from the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard to work specifically on the Biden campaign as a pollster. Please explain it to us. What exactly does the pollster do? So, yes, it was like an incredible honor. As, as the, the primary was winding down early summer, the Biden campaign approached me and and the Biden campaign wanted to do things differently. We talked about that. They want to do things differently. And typically you have a lead pollster um, and he or she is responsible for a team of other pollsters and they essentially divide up each of the states. Okay, there's a lead pollster would be in charge with like designing messaging and communication strategy. And then someone would be in charge of Michigan and someone else would be in charge of Florida, et cetera. What the Biden campaign did was they flipped that. Okay, so we had a couple of pollsters John Anzalone, who was essentially kind of our chief, with Celinda Lake, who had worked on multiple successful presidential campaigns, going back to the Clinton days, through the Obama days, et cetera. But then the campaign also hired subject matter experts, right? Professor Silas Lee, Dr. Lee from Louisiana, Professor Matt uh, Barreto, who worked on the Hispanic Latino vote, and my team and I worked on the youth vote. So what that meant was that, and we were kind of a collective team, essentially the five of us, and we would both review other state polling in terms of younger people, but I would spend, you know, hours and hours in, in focus groups, you know, um, with the, the, the different constituencies that make up the youth vote, right? Because it's, it's not a kind of monolith. So right. we would we would via Zoom, because this was during COVID, Jimmy, right? We would mm -hmm. kind of zoom into Arizona and talk to younger uh, first-time voters of Hispanic or Latino descent. We would zoom into, you know, uh, Philadelphia, Milwaukee, et cetera. What we wanted to do was to see kind of whether they were motivated to vote and what questions they had. And the, the, the common theme I recall from those early days is basically kind of a lack of kind of a lack of understanding or connection with Vice President, then Vice President Biden. They had not remembered when he was necessarily in the White House. And it was important through that lens, what we, we understood is to tell his personal story. You know, so many people take that for granted, but this younger generation didn't know that many of them shared the same kind of working class, blue collar roots that he shared, um, that he was not necessarily an aristocrat. And that was important because what I want to do as a pollster is find those connected points, right? Before we could talk about messages, we need to talk about values, shared right. values. Then we, we need to the make person those is, values. right? Exactly. And then we need yeah. to make those, those values are connect, connected to the person and the messenger. And then we can get to the specific messages. Right. So you're you're basically taking the temperature of all the of the young people in various parts of the country. What what do they care about? What makes them tick? And introducing them, reintroducing them to Joe Biden. You know, one of the things I thought that one of the highest compliments I ever heard one politician give another politician was when Barack Obama said, the best thing I ever did hmm. was pick Joe Biden as my vice president. 
You know, I mean, that's a tremendous uh, compliment. And this is a very successful president, two terms. And, you know, uh, and I just thought that, that I just thought that why isn't Biden touting this? You know, mm. what, that's like a really that's not bragging. That's just saying, you know, Barack Obama. This is just a quote from Barack Obama. Sure. Maybe Joe doesn't say it, but other people say it for him. You know, it was just a really uh, valuable piece of data that I don't know if they were trying to not blow his own horn or something, but I just thought it would be really valuable and for the next election as well. But anyway, so you worked with the with the uh, the Biden team and tell us about the turnout that you were able to deliver for Joe Biden or help deliver for Joe Biden. First of all, young people delivered it. I I, I measured it. Yeah, I helped right. it along, perhaps. Right. I, I, I'm not going to take credit for that. But we I'll saw... give you credit. I give you credit. <laughs> all right. I'll take that. That's what I'll take. But listen, um, for the first time in history, we had a majority like we had over 50 percent. Uh, for the first time in history, a majority of 18 to 29 year olds turn up, number one. But more, even more importantly than that, we saw 60, 61% of those people who vote for Joe Biden. Okay. And that's the, that's the magic number. We need to get to 60%. You know, right. John Kerry got to 55%, lost to Bush. Hillary Clinton got to 55, 56%, lost to Trump. So we needed to both boost overall turnout, record yeah. numbers, but also hit that 60% number which we did. And listen, if the election were in, in Arizona, in Michigan, in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Georgia, the election were only held among people in their 40s and older, Donald Trump is president today. It is mm -hmm. the double digit margin, uh, averaging 20 points among the 18 to 29 year old group that was responsible for pushing uh, Biden over 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 the line, finish line in each of those battleground states. In addition, though, in addition to to uh, the Biden-Harris ticket, narrowing the gap um, among seniors as well. So he also improved upon um, yeah, Clinton's performance with seniors as well. And that's important, of course, as well. Right. So looking forward, okay, uh, the issues that are driving young people, guns, climate, choice, uh, you know, immigration reform, how do you think coming into 2024, how do you think young people are going to respond to the the Biden-Harris ticket going into 2024 compared to the whoever the nomination nominee is for the Republicans? Well, I think that's a key point, right? Compared to the alternative, right? right. That's a key point. Elections are about are, are about differences. And I think those issues, what those issues have in common, and you could add, you know, affordability of housing you know, mm -hmm. um, to that list as well, access to health care, mental health care. But mm -hmm. essentially, when you when you look at all those issues, as you as you talked about, you know, uh, climate, gun safety, health care, housing, et cetera, those are basic fundamental rights um, in the eyes of younger people. And what they see is they see one party who is doing the best that they can to kind of expand and extend and protect those rights. And they see largely the, the alternative, um, uh, the opposite happening from the Republican side at this point. So I think that's what this, this fight's gonna be. It's about exp protecting, expanding what a generation believes are basic, fundamental, and human rights. Right, tell me, John, 
Is the book written for people my age or is the book written for them, the, the younger folks? Or who's the book written for? Because it's a fascinating book. I loved it. It's inspiring. It's easy to read. It's just a, a snapshot of American history from the last 20, 20 years and how we got where we are and what the different currents are. And who, who, who are you trying to reach with the book? Because I think everybody should read it personally. I started writing it for basically kind of people like us, okay? Yeah. People who are our age or older and to try to, again, interpret and to try to kind of share this like unique voice um, mm -hmm. in this moment in, in, in history and talk about how younger people are already changing this arc of history. When right. I, once it was published and then once I started talking about it, I actually found that it was as helpful to younger people who don't have the confidence because of the stereotypes, the unfair mm -hmm. stereotypes, I think they're seeing it kind of in the media though. So I, I, I wrote it for like, you know, for basically to kind of be a general audience read, but for, you know, parents of younger people, people who work and mentor and uh, are, are kind of connected with them or important part of their business. But I think it's also given some hope and confidence to younger people because, you know, in the, in the people I've met along the way, some of the stories I elevate, we talked about Parkland, but, I mean, one of the most moving experiences was was getting getting to know um, the story and the background of Donella Frazier. You know, yeah. this is a 17 year old woman, you know, high school student, Jimmy, right? Who yeah. um, she just wants to hang out with her friends. It was Memorial Day, right, of of uh, of 2020 during COVID, and um, she was at a bonfire in Minneapolis, um, and she promised her nine-year-old niece um, that she would take her for ice cream cone. And little did she know, little did we know that she was the first witness to what her nine-year-old niece called their first murder. And that was mm -hmm. the murder at the hands of police of, of George Floyd, a person's name that we don't know, I think, um, without Darnella being brave enough to hold that iPhone out there for 10 minutes, because we don't know the other dozen men and women who are who were killed at the hands of Minnesota police that year, or the 13 right. before that. So it's just not about their values, but it's also shared these experiences of how younger members of this generation have also had tremendous impact in shaping this country, whether they appreciate that or not. Right. And they and as you were saying in the book, they're the most educated and the most technologically savvy and they're uh, worldly, and they are less prejudiced than the older generations, and they're more politically involved, and they want more things. They want more equality, more equity across the board for everybody. It seems that's what I caught out of the book and the interviews you did with people. She actually won the Pulitzer Prize for that video. She did. She's a remarkable young woman. And there are a dozen other younger people I talk about. You know, I, I, I tell the story of uh, Greta Thunberg, as well, yeah. who we right. don't know who Greta is without David Hogg. You know, she right. cared so much about climate, so much of the environment, but she wasn't able to de develop an audience in Stockholm. She says, you know what? I'm going to do what those young Americans did in Florida. I'm going to try a school strike, you know? And a few months later, she has an audience with, with the Pope, right? right. And, <laughs> and, and, and inspiring younger people, not just in this country, but around the world. These were remarkable people. Right. Well, the March for the March for Our Lives that came out of the Parkland uh, uh, High School massacre 
that was amazing. Um, what's the young woman's name? Uh, Emma Gonzalez. Emma, Is that her now name? Ex, Emma, now, now she was my ex Gonzalez. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Emma, um, and, and David Hogg and uh, all those folks that these kids, 17 years old, organized this national movement that uh, dwarfed anything in the past in terms of uh, gun safety rallies. And it was just, and they turned and they changed the conversation and they actually got legislation in several states. And Walmart started, uh, said they're not going to sell uh, auto these automatic weapons anymore. And Dick Sporting Goods had a change of policy. And they used consumerism and consumer pressure. So they're very savvy. They're the, as you say in the book, they're the most educated, most technologically savvy, the most consumer savvy. And uh, so I finished reading the book feeling hopeful about not only 2024, but the, the elections to come because of people like this that are growing up in this country and they're not, they're not apathetic and they know that they can change things and it actually makes a difference. Uh, John, I just want to thank you so much for doing this interview. And where can people got the book? I got my book at the Harvard Bookstore, my favorite bookstore. So I wanted to support the Harvard Bookstore. But any bookstore, ladies and gentlemen, fight how Gen Z is channeling their fear and passion to save America. I love it. So how optimistic are you about 2024? What do you think? I'm cautiously optimistic. I'm cautiously uh -huh. optimistic. You know, um, listen, uh, the values of millennials and the values of, of Gen Z be, continue to become more such kind of progressive every day in terms of uh, fighting for those more vulnerable. I am somewhat concerned about this cynicism creeping in. So I think one of the things I would ask, you know, you and your audience is to all of us, we need to do what we can to kind of reduce the cynicism and make sure younger people are able to see the, the change that they've already made in the country by turning out in such high numbers the last three elections. And they need to continue, continue to do that. Right. It's a very different place think, because of them. Right. And do you think that the Biden campaign will uh, get the messaging required to, to explain to people what they've done with the infrastructure bill, what they've done with green energy? and the green economy, what the, the seeds that they're planting that will bear fruit in the next, you know, few years and uh, and trying to reduce student debt. I mean, that's yeah. a big thing. Yeah. You know, I, I, I've said for quite a while that I think the Biden-Harris administration overall has ironically, right, been the most youth friendly organization, the youth forward administration, probably in, in, in my lifetime, number one. And I also know and appreciate how much they care about younger people. Um, and it's going to be an important part of, of this campaign. And um, I'm, I'm, I'm excited for it. Okay. And that also means all these people watching over 40, like myself, we got to get out there. We got to knock on doors. We got to donate. We got to call our neighbors and we have to vote because it's not just one segment of the population that's going to be the game changer. Everybody has to participate if we want a brighter future. John, I can't thank you enough for doing this interview. Where can people find you if they're interested in not only reading more about you, but is there a website? Can they get the book off your website? Yeah, so so a couple things. So on all the social handles, it's at Delavolpe, D-E-L-L-A-V-O-L-P-E. And I just started a Substack where I'm posting a lot of my original research, JDV on Gen Z. JDV on Gen Z on Gen Z. That'll be in the show notes. Your website will be in the show notes if you want it to be. And uh, at Della Volpe, D-E-L-L-V-O-L-P-E, -L -L -E, at Della Volpe. 
John, it's great to see you. We will see you on Morning Joe. We'll see you on MSNBC. And we might see you roaming the halls of the Harvard Kennedy School when I go back for my annual comedy performance. Love it. I'll see you soon, Jerry. Thanks so much. Great. So great to see you. Thanks a million. Congratulations on the book. It's a great read. It's a great contribution to the culture. And we appreciate it. Thank you.